Anyway, since we seem to be out of witnesses, I thought I'd drink a little. Finished product, so now we're officially being recorded. So, um, um, welcome to uh, Straight Law Cocktail, uh, Tyler and my little creation uh, in the uh, blogosphere or the interweb, if we want to call it that. Um, uh, with us today is our first ever guest, uh, John Paul Boyd who's done amazing things um, in, in law generally, but in family law specifically. Um, and I got to know uh, John Paul probably mostly through work with both Krilf and through the uh, limited legal service project that we put together uh, in Alberta to test out and examine limited scope retainer work. Um, and uh, in getting to know uh, John Paul through that process um, I got to know him as uh, both a very engaging uh, individual, but also somebody who's very passionate about access to justice and improving what we do for our clients. So um, welcome, John Paul. Thank you for joining us today. Appreciate that. Thank you very much, Rob and Tyler. Um, so maybe uh, I know that you've been doing some interesting things on YouTube, uh, your five-minute family law bits. Uh, we are trying to pare ours down. Uh, already, I feel like I'm talking too long. Um, I, I wonder if I could ask you to let us uh, know, or anybody who's watching this know, how did you get from being a lawyer to the different things that you did uh, in your practice, including the Boyd Family Law, um, uh, your book, and, and the website that you set up in BC, and eventually get to Krilf, and, and what are you up to these days? Well, that's not a big question at all, is it, Rob? <laughs> um, so I guess um, I, I was called to the bar in 2000, and uh, I had uh, some interesting articles. And uh, for those of you who aren't lawyers, um, um, articles are kind of a modern-day apprenticeship where you're essentially indentured to a principal who, whose job is to teach you and mold you in the ways of proper ethical lawyering and things like that. But uh, what happened with me is that uh, uh, I was articling with a firm that had a couple of civil lawyers doing things like wrongful dismissals and personal injury claims, and then a criminal law lawyer, um, and uh, the vast majority of criminal criminal lawyers, um, you know, really uh, only make a living if they do a lot of legal aid work. And what I found was that um, the experience I had serving those clients uh, was so different than the clients I was dealing with as a law student with, uh, with the University of British Columbia's Law Students Legal Advice Program. Because in the legal advice program, you're only able to help people who don't have a criminal record. And, you know, so most of these people are just so tremendously happy to have you help them in any way, shape or form. And then you're going on to serving a legal aid clientele and uh, at least in British Columbia, at least you don't qualify for legal aid unless you're going to jail if you're convicted. And so I'm dealing with, you know, going from a population of people that are like, oh man, thanks so much. I really appreciate your help to a population of individuals who are incarcerated when I'm in, when I'm interviewing them, and frankly, don't particularly mind the prospect of being a guest of Her Majesty for another three to three or four months, and so that was a real shock. 
And so when I finished my articles, they didn't want to keep me and I didn't want to be kept. And so I was looking for a kind of the job that would give me the same sense of satisfaction and client service that I had when I was a law student at the Law Students Legal Advice Program. And so that led me to family law. And, uh, you know, I found a job at a firm and I fell in love uh, almost immediately. And one of the things that I was struck with was the degree of anxiety and fear um, that was prevalent among the people that I was seeing in, in my practice. And, and how much of the anxiety and fear stemmed from their near complete ignorance of the court system, uh, because this was at a time when every file that walked into the door was a file that was presumptively going to be resolved at trial. So there was all that fear about the court system and hardly anybody understood anything about the nuts and bolts of family law. Um, and so uh, I started to put together in my free time a website. Uh, and so this was in 2001 and there weren't uh, these, you know, fantastic programs that you can get from like GoDaddy and those other website providers where you just sit down at your computer and build a website in, you know, the blink of an eye. So this was me sitting down with Microsoft Notepad, you know, programming the entire website by hand in HTML, like, yes. <laughs> word by word. Um, and so I created this website that was all about, you know, family law and court processes and things like that, um, that was uh, intended really just as a public legal education project so that, you know, uh, you had a bet so that people would have a better understanding of what it meant when you were arguing about custody and access and guardianship and the rules about child support and all the rest of it. And over time, the website just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and so that, that was really where uh, it all started. Uh, I've always had a passionate interest in access to justice and the website, um, which evolved into the present wiki and the wiki book, um, was just a public legal education exercise um, that started small but very quickly grew into uh, what is now when you printed out a 700 page book on family law. So when did you first put that together, John Paul? Uh, which the wiki book or the website? The, the web page, Boyd Family uh, so, Law. So yeah, it was it was called um, BC Family Law Resource, um, and you know my name was there, uh, but uh, you know it, I didn't mention where I worked and didn't give you any way of contacting me because it wasn't about um, getting getting clients or getting paid. Uh, and so that was first published in 2001, if I remember correctly, and then hung on. And then, and then what happened in British Columbia is that the, uh, the primary legislation on family law, the Family Relations Act, was getting kicked to the curb and replaced by the Family Law Act, which had a completely new scheme for the parenting after separation, uh, relocation of children and everything and division of property and debt, everything was new. And so um, there I was sitting at the helm of this massive website and completely overwhelmed by the prospect of having to rewrite this thing in order to update it to the new legislation. And then Courthouse Libraries British Columbia came along and said, hey, uh, what'd you think of giving it to us because we were thinking of doing a wiki just like Wikipedia and WikiLeaks and all the other wikis that people know about. And so because I'm an idiot and didn't realize what I was agreeing to, I said, sure, and then <laughs> found myself rewriting the entire thing anyways. Oh. And so that, and you're that doing all this while you're 
still trying to make a living as a lawyer. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Stunning. Well, it was, a, it was fun and uh, I found it to be a rewarding. Um, oh, but the, of course, the, the interesting thing is that um, when I did start at the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family, um, uh, I, I was able to convince the British Columbia Law Foundation to pay uh, for an evaluation of the effectiveness of the, of the wiki book. And so what was funny about that is I realized for the first time uh, how many users of the Wikibook uh, were in fact not the public, but lawyers and judges and law students. <laughs> that, oh, wow. that, was, uh, that was unexpected. <laughs> so, so, so how did you find yourself then from putting together uh, uh, the family law site to eventually ending up in Calgary with Krilf? Well, so what wound up happening is um, that um, early on in my career, I began to um, do a lot of presentations for continuing legal education organizations. And that expanded and eventually I became, you know, I was presenting at the National Family Law Program. And then I began doing a lot of presentations for the National Judicial Institute, which is the national organization that trains uh, federally appointed judges across Canada. And, and so I, I enjoy doing all of that. It's, it's lots of fun. Um, but when BC's Family Law Act came out, um, I discovered that, well, I don't know how it happened, but it, it sort of, it wound up being me that was single-handedly doing the vast majority of the public and professional education about the new act from small groups of parents and, and grandparents in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, to lawyers in uh, Prince George and Prince Rupert in the north of the province, uh, to the British Columbia Provincial Court, the Supreme Court, and the Court of Appeal. And doing all of this, um, I sort of found myself uh, getting a little bit uh, burned out. And a friend of mine uh, named Nick Bala, who's a professor of law at Queens, uh, who also does a lot of teaching uh, for the NJI, we, he ran into me at an, at an NJI program and it's like, well, I'm on the board of directors of this research organization and what do you think about? And then I thought about it and I thought about it and it sort of tied into getting a little bit burned out from doing all this teaching about the Family Law Act. And uh, I eventually perhaps foolishly said yes. And so uh, the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family had enough funding to pay to move me from scenic and lovely Maple Ridge in British Columbia out to the somewhat less scenic and lovely Calgary. And, uh, and I started at the Research Institute um, and eventually uh, taught family law for a couple of uh, semesters at the University of Calgary. And then what wound up happening is the Institute uh, was forced to close in August of 2018. And there I was kicked out in the street, having relocated myself to and my family, of course, to Calgary. And so here we are. And so now you've got Boyd Arbitration. Yes. Is, is, uh, and, and your focus now not on a litigation practice, but on a, uh, what I guess we've referred to as alternate resolution, dispute resolution. Yeah. Um, and how have you found that? Do you, do you find that there's an uptake, generally speaking? It's, uh, uh, the, I guess the good news for me was that um, 
the writing was on the wall about the closure of the Institute for months before the doors finally closed. And it let me spend a lot of time, um, you know, gave me the luxury of thinking about what I was going to do when I returned to practice. And so I had options. I mean, I could go and join a firm and, you know, work for the man like I had uh, for years in British Columbia. Um, I could, you know, see about government, but of course, uh, you know, that was the time when belts were beginning to tighten. Uh, so that didn't seem to be an option. I thought about putting my hat in for a seat on the bench, but, you know, that's a roll of the dice and there's nothing guaranteed there. Or I thought I could try to refashion a practice for myself. And so, I made the decision that uh, I wasn't going to litigate anymore and that uh, how I would help people was as an arbitrator, a mediator, a parenting coordinator, um, that I would also provide some children's services such as uh, non-evaluative views of the child reports because that's something I've always liked doing. Um, and uh, so far, um, I have found it to be rewarding. Um, bluntly speaking, um, it's been difficult getting into business. I mean, when I was uh, litigating in Vancouver and took a case to mediation, well, you know, I would pick from the list of five different mediators that I used and used a lot. And, and it was always one of those people. And so the hard part for anybody that's, you know, just finished their training in arbitration or mediation is breaking into that list of three, four or five people that every lawyer has, you know, on their favorites list. Um, and so that's the challenge. Um, and then the other problem was that um, in Alberta, you know, I was primarily known as a nerdy academic uh, rather than, you know, somebody who was in court a lot. And so, you know, I really had no choice except to expand uh, my practice to not just Calgary, but all of Alberta and not just Vancouver, but all of British Columbia. And uh, this, uh, interestingly, sort of plays into the interest I have in access to justice because my practice model is paperless and largely electronic. Uh, so even before COVID-19, uh, a, a great deal of my work as a mediator, arbitrator, and parenting coordinator was being done remotely. Um, and that was following up on a multi-year study that was done by Mediate BC starting, I think, sometime in the middle of the last decade um, that was examining the pros and cons of remote mediation. And, and so for me, it was not just a necessity in terms of trying to get the business I need to keep a roof over my head and my family's head. It was also an access to justice opportunity because, you know, as we know, there are parts of Northern British Columbia and Northern Alberta where it's not a question of there not being a family law lawyer within 500 kilometers. There are no lawyers within 500 kilometers. And so with a process that focuses on remote resolution using Zoom and other devices to maintain contact and conduct meetings with clients. Um, it's a way of extending the reach of legal services and dispute resolution options into the parts of the province that are rural or in the north and don't have access to quality dispute resolution services, you know, and these are areas of the province, of course, where judges and prosecutors fly in by, you know, by, uh, you know, uh, airplane, and the courts are open, not every day, Monday through Friday, but like maybe twice a month. And so um, it was, uh, it was important. And I, and I have, I have found it to be uh, enriching and rewarding and satisfying. So that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, and in 
I've asked you a bunch of questions and Tyler's been nodding his head. Tyler's a relatively junior lawyer, even practicing about four years. Is that right, Tyler? Uh, yeah, four years plus my article. Yeah, um, and he's trained as a mediator and you've done uh, online mediation. I haven't yeah, I have. yet. So, so what's your experience been and can you relate to some of what, what John Paul says about trying to crack that nut, so to speak? You know what I was going to ask you, JP, what, what do we do to kind of expand that and how do you promote it? And I've got a lot of success uh, and, and quite a bit more files for mediation once COVID hit because people were sort of forced to do this. And I think that uh, and we had great success. And now I see, look, we don't need to run the court consistently. We don't need to keep rolling the dice and paying a bunch of money to let a judge decide. Clients can handle this uh, and lawyers can handle getting their clients to that point if they have to. Uh, so how do we, you know, I guess, how do we promote that? How, how have you done it to push med, ARB, and parenting coordination? Well, part of the overall problem with how we administer family justice in Canada as a whole is that we as a society do a terrible job of discussing dispute resolution in general. Right. I mean, you know, maybe we talked about it in our high school civics class if we were lucky. But, you know, I, I believe that if we stepped outside of our various doors right now and randomly pulled in 10 people off the street and gave them a scenario like your roommate stole your microwave and won't give it back or you got fired from a job and it was totally unfair. And we said, what are you going to do about it? That, you know, nine out of 10 of those people would say, well, I'm going to go to court. And, and that's the dispute resolution paradigm that we see on TV. It's what we see on, a, you know, on movies that we get from the United States. And I hazard to guess that there will never be a fast-paced, gripping, emotionally fraught drama about the perils of life in a mediator's office, right? It's just, we're just not going to see that, right? And so the problem is that... And from the point of view of the general public, um, you know, the, the dispute resolution option that leaps immediately to mind and is the most threatening and intimidating for the person on the other side of the problem is court, right? And, and you know, and unfortunately, um, you know, pretty much everything around us reinforces that notion. Like Tyler, do you happen to recall offhand the number of times the word agreement appears in Alberta's Family Law Act? <laughs> nope. The answer is zero. Oh. <laughs> so if you are an informed member of the public and think, well, shit, I've managed to pass grade six, um, I'm going to read uh, the Family Law Act to find out what my rights and responsibilities are. When you do that and you have a question, how do I get child support? You know, well, you flip to the section of the Family Law Act and it says to apply for an order. Right? What about parenting after separation to apply for an order? And so everything in your review of the Family Law Act steers you towards court. And the yeah. problem from an access to justice perspective is that in research that I, I led at the Canadian Research Institute for Law and the Family, looking nationally at about 200 family law lawyers from across Canada, there was near unanimous consent that litigation is the dispute resolution process that is the most destructive, least efficient, most time consuming, and most 
expensive of all dispute resolution processes and that lawyers in general do not like to litigate even though we all do it because it's what our clients expect and that the lawyers that we spoke to said that uh, mediation, arbitration, and uh, collaborative negotiation were all far more likely to result in orders that were not only in their client's interest but in their, the interest of their client's children. Right? And yet we as a society steer, what, 99% of our justice dollars into funding the dispute resolution process that is the most destructive and least efficient and most expensive. And that just blows my mind. And so that's a very long way of getting around to answering your question, which is to say that, you know, we need to do a better job uh, both as a profession and as a society in educating people about the availability of other means of dispute resolution. And I believe that that starts not in high school civics, but in primary school in teaching kids other ways of resolving disputes that happen on the playground or between their friends. Right. And so from my point of view, um, you, you know, you know, maybe I've uh, I've taken the blue pill, not the red pill, uh, and I believe that mediation, arbitration, and collaborative negotiation, especially collaborative negotiation, are all vastly superior ways of resolving family law disputes than going to court. But the trick is to educate the public uh, so that they are better, uh, more aware that that alternatives exist um, and that they are, in fact, more efficient and faster and produce results that are more likely to be satisfactory. Then as far as, you know, breaking into that list of, you know, the each lawyer's top five arbitrators and mediators, um, well, it's, it's a question um, of doing a lot of professional legal education, you know, speaking to uh, Legal Education Society of Alberta courses uh, when that's available, uh, speaking to your local family law section with the Canadian Bar Association, and taking advantage of, of every, you know, professional education opportunity you have. And, you know, I know I certainly found that when I began to make this the sole focus of my practice, you know, I began to acquire a far deeper appreciation of the nuances of mediation and arbitration. And, and you know, uh, and, and that became fodder for, you know, my professional legal education opportunities because you know, I got to think about really squirrely questions about, you know, what's the arbitrator's jurisdiction when there's an existing court order on the same subject? Or how do you make the transition between mediation and arbitration when you combine them two? Uh, and is there a more efficient way of, you know, grabbing hold of the evidence you heard in the mediation process to be able to use it in the arbitration process? Or how can we more effectively design arbitration processes so that they are truly proportionate to the importance, complexity, and value of the matters at issue in a given family law dispute? So there's so much to be said about all of those things. It's, it's an opportunity to, you know, get out there and speak to uh, both the, the public and the, and the profession about arbitration and mediation and all that they have to offer. Thanks for that, John Paul. Uh, so I want to just back up just a hair and ask you a little bit about this. So you said you, you taught um, at U of C, you taught the family law course there, um, which I took. I don't know my name. I took it maybe 2014 or something like that. Um, not with you, but with someone else. And you know, you take probably class after the, class. Uh, Jillian Marriott, right? That was Jillian Marriott. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. did you teach after her before? Marriott. Yeah, Justice Marriott. Yeah, did yeah. you teach before her or after? After. 
Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I took course after course after course at, at U of C, and all of it is, hey, where's that? Where's the rules of court? What's the rules of evidence? How do we litigate? How do we litigate? And then once a year for one week, they teach us a course <laughs> called alternative dispute resolution. Yep. We even call it that alternative dispute resolution. And the courts still call it that alternative dispute resolution, as opposed to dispute resolution, right? These are different mechanisms. Yep. And so when I present it to my clients, I say, look, we got options. And there's maybe a bit of a spectrum, but there's certainly different options about dispute resolution. But I think we got to be careful even about calling it alternatives. Why aren't these maybe the primary source of dispute resolutions? Um, do you have anything to say about that? Am I on the right track there? Well, um, you know, so that was not only your experience, but the experience of almost all Canadian law students in the early part of the last decade. My impression is that uh, law schools are becoming far more enlightened places now than they once were. The Truth and Reconciliation Committee's report has led to an absolute efflorescence of interest in Indigenous law and in a better appreciation of the experience of Indigenous Canadians in the Western legal tradition. And along with, you know, important uh, new perspectives on law that were not commonly taught when I went to law school, um, is a greater emphasis being placed on arbitration and mediation and other forms of dispute resolution to the point where, and I believe this is at the University of Alberta, there's even a class that focuses on the dis dispute resolution specifically in family law cases. Wow. Um, a lot of universities are now offering uh, moots uh, that are not about uh, trial uh, advocacy or appellate advocacy, but advocacy in the context of mediation. And so there is a change, right? Uh, but, you know, remember, though, that, you know, the, the law in Canada has its roots uh, in, you know, the development of the common law after the Norman Conquest in 1066 and the establishment by Henry II of the Court of Common Pleas in like 1270 or something like that. That is like 800 years of solid, you know, roots in the litigation processes. It's the foundation of our entire system. And so it's not surprising at all that this is how law school orients itself, right? And so, you know, I mean, and Alberta's Family Law Act is such a good example of that kind of heritage, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's no discussion anywhere in that legislation about the prospect or even possibility of being able to resolve disputes other than through court. And so that's how law schools pump out their graduates. Yeah. Things are changing. But that's still the, the fundamental orientation and footing of law school is still in that antiquated dispute resolution process that is so terribly destructive for families. Well, I know when I when I was the chair of the Access to Justice Committee for the Law Society, I was involved with the Reforming Family Justice Initiative that I think you were working with too, John Paul. And yes. in, in the example of that antiquated or that... Uh, you know, that commitment to business as usual is stunning. And we're in a room where we're trying to create innovation. And I recall, for example, saying for following on what you said, John Paul, we spend millions of dollars every year educating lawyers to litigate. What if the government supported a high quality mediation uh, program where 
excellence was pursued in mediation to make it better yet. No, we're not interested in that. Then I got sort of shuttled into a group where we were talking about public education. And I said, following up on what you said, why don't we get into the schools at an early age and talk about uh, the law, how it works and what alternatives are for working out problems. Well, what that turned into was, yeah, we should have an anti-bullying program. And so what I took out of that before I finally quit was the stunning lack of imagination in justice, right? We call this thing straight law cocktail because this is how I am. I became very frustrated and you're kinder than me, but would you agree that there is such a frustration with, with the status quo being maintained by the powers that be? Is that something we just keep fighting against? Well, you know, so yeah, I had the same experience, right? And um, you and uh, your listeners uh, will hopefully recall the flood of important access to justice reports that were issued in 2012, right? Mm -hmm. There was Julie McFarland's report on the flood of litigants without counsel that came from the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Uh, we had uh, the Canadian Bar Association's access to justice report. Um, and then we had um, the, uh, the working group and final reports of the National Action Committee on access to, to civil and family justice. And, you know, I was so excited because it felt that there was this momentum that, you know, like the wave had begun to crest, right? That there was this national awareness. We had Chief Justice McLaughlin talking about this every chance she got to whoever would listen. And I thought, damn, this is the time, man. We are here. We're about to see change. And sure enough, groups were founded all across Canada. The one in British Columbia is still going strong and has done wonderful things. There was a group established in Alberta. And yet I had exactly the same experience that you did, right? That, you know, we still were facing a system which, you know, pumps millions and millions of dollars into this messed up, destructive and inefficient, antiquated dispute resolution system. Like, why is it that legal aid uh, funds litigation but won't pay for you to go to mediation. And that's messed up. I, I just can't fathom why that's the case. And yet, when you stand back and you look at the system, right, you know, that those millions of dollars that are spent maintaining the Court of Queen's Bench and the Alberta Provincial Court represent on its own an immense amount of inertia, right? Because to do something different requires redirecting that, that gigantic torrent of money that is pouring from the provincial coffers and aiming it somewhere else. Well, in the meantime, you've got all of the lawyers who, who are making good money for themselves, litigating their pants off. You have a system where what are judges except for older lawyers, right? Yeah. Who attained their success through the very system which we are seeking to change and undermine. And then we have all the uh, all of the court staff whose, whose welfare and well-being and paychecks are intimately tied to preserving the status quo. And so there, you know, what I what I so what I am so incredibly afraid of is that that momentum that we saw in 2012 is just now the wave gently washing up onto the beach and beginning to retreat back into the sea, having done nothing but knock down a few sandcastles. And their, you know, change, meaningful, substantive change does not appear to be on the horizon. 
But having said that, look across the Rockies at what's going on in British Columbia. We have the Civil Dispute Resolution Tribunal, which is resolving legal disputes uh, online, remotely, using uh, computer-guided processes before you get to an actual human being. Um, we have uh, the provincial court in British Columbia is running a pilot project in Victoria about a less adversarial trial structure. That's amazing. We also see in British Columbia groups like the BC Hear the Child Society or the BC Parenting Coordinators Roster Society that have sprung up with the intention of creating change in how families uncouple and go through that awful dispute resolution process. And so there are, there are tendrils of change across the country. We've got the amendments to the Divorce Act that are gonna be coming in sometime later on in the late summer or early fall that are actually going to require people to attempt a dispute resolution process other than court. And that's the federal government saying this. Mind you, they haven't put any money behind uh, their, their mouths, but they've said it and yes. that's kind of important. And so there are these little pockets of change and yet the status quo, this, the, this absolutely mammoth system, which begins at law school and ends at the court of appeal is still plugging along like it always has occupying and demanding the disproportionate share of justice dollars from the, the public that it always has. So we do need change and I'm getting frustrated. <laughs> but, you, you and me both. Well, I, I, I know that your videos on YouTube uh, are five minutes, give or take. Ours, we've tried to pare down to half an hour, and we're already, I think, at around 35 minutes. And I know you have to get on the road uh, to come down to our neck of the woods, so to speak, in, in Medicine Hat. So um, uh, I just want to extend my appreciation, uh, John Paul, for joining us today, but more so for the effort that you've made to to try to give a fresh perspective on how business can be done, um, both through CRILF, through research, which both the uh, Cromwell report and the CBA report said is important, but unfortunately, obviously the funding Unfunded. wasn't there, but, but the effort you've done is, uh, is amazing. And I, along with you, we're, Tyler and I are digital. I work from home half time. This is my home office. Um, so I think there are changes in the offing, but yeah, it's yeah. two steps forward, and, three back sometimes. Well, and, and the, the, the tragic irony is that I think that the coronavirus may prove to be, if not the tipping point, a couple of steps leading to the tipping point towards making long lasting and entrenched systemic change. Because with the coronavirus, we have had demonstrated in a way that I suspect none of us could possibly have predicted the sheer fragility of so many public institutions, including the courts, that we have just taken for granted. And, you know, the, the inability of the courts to provide in-person hearings has led the courts of Alberta, the courts of Ontario, the courts of British Columbia and other provinces and territories to suddenly get serious about the possibility of conducting hearings by telephone, which is frankly not a good idea, uh, but doing them by video conference, which is a much better idea. Mm -hmm. And demonstrating to courts that, you know, even though you have always done it a certain way, it doesn't mean that you can't try something new. And so 
the tragedy is that I would never have wanted so many people to become ill or die in order to provoke meaningful change in justice processes in Canada. And yet uh, that is nonetheless part, I think, of what we will be reaping as a public benefit. Well, here's hoping. Yep. So um, that ends our, our podcast today. I didn't uh, drink my straight law cocktail. It's a little bit early for me. Uh, we're, it's uh, we're, we're doing this in the morning today. So uh, it's a bit of a change from what we've normally done. So we, I guess we, yeah, we, the, the cocktail's left, but I had a nice coffee. So. <laughs> well, I have a cocktail for noon. So. There you go. Well, you, you folks have your straight, uh, your straight cocktails later. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much, Rob. And uh, thank you, Tyler.